Welcome to the American Reformer Podcast, hosted by Josh Abatoy and Tymon Klein. Our mission is to promote a vigorous Christian approach to the cultural challenges of our day, rooted in the rich tradition of Protestant social and political thought. All right. Hello and welcome back to the American Reformer podcast. As usual, you've got Josh Abatoy, executive director here. I'm joined by Timon Klein, editor-in-chief. And today we've got a very special guest, Aaron Wren, co-founder of American Reformer and a senior fellow here. Um, Aaron, uh, you've no doubt seen him around. You can find him writing on Substack. You can find his print work and many other publications, including, for example, the Wall Street Journal and the Atlantic, um, and of course, American Reformer. Um, Aaron, uh, Aaron spent years at the Manhattan Institute and before that uh, had a career in, in consulting. Um, today, we've got Aaron joining us to talk about his forthcoming book, which expounds on the articles you've no doubt read. Uh, about Aaron's thesis of the the negative world and the three worlds of evangelicalism. Aaron, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. All right, time in. Well, why don't you go ahead and, and start teeing us up here a little bit? Sure. Um, yeah, so the, bo- the book's full title is Life in the Negative World, Confronting Challenges in an Anti-Christian Culture. And this, um, as Aaron expounds in the introduction, and some of the first chapter is a you know, building off of the viral article in every sense of the word viral article we had at first things. Uh, would that be, what year was that actually, Aaron? I forget now. Was it it's last actually, year it was, or 2022? It, it came out in 2022, almost exactly two years okay. ago, slightly more than two years ago. It came out, it was in the February 22 issue, but it came out in January, I believe. Gotcha. Yep. Um, so that, <clears throat> that was again, a, a very viral article. It, it's still making the rounds and it's kind of one of those things where, um, you know, it's successful because when people talk about certain concepts, they can't help but mention it, um, even if begrudgingly. They have to they have to mention it because it's sort of captured a particular part of the popular evangelical imagination. It's a framework um, for those of you that know this that have read it. It's a framework for analysis, for, for kind of determining where what our situation is based on past developments. And, um, and, but then the book, I mean, the, the reason you should get the book is most of the book is actually about, um, living in this context and what strategies there are for, uh, confronting it, drawing on, you know, the good aspects of past strategies for evangelicals to stay relevant, adaptable, so on and so forth. Um, and so that, I mean, I, I think of in my head as Aaron is the, uh, you said he's a former consultant, Josh, but he's like the consultant for evangelicals now. Um, so it's, it's kind of the, the function here, but the unpaid Aaron, consultant, I might add. The, uh, the, the, uh, yes, the volunteer consultant. Um, but Aaron, walk us through the, um, you know, kind of, I'm sure you've done this before, but the impetus for the article and then the book, and then we can get into sort of the real meat of it after that. Sure. The original framework was developed actually in 2014. Um, a friend of mine was doing some consulting work, um, for a think tank that put out a series of seven, I believe it was like 20 minute short films uh, under the heading of for the life of the world. Um, after the name of the, the famous book was it Alexander Schmemann or however you pronounce his name, 
who made that book. And it was uh, it actually was a really well done film. It showed on a lot of um, Christian um, college campuses. That's where I saw it at Indiana Wesleyan University here in Indiana and uh, was really um, great. Well done. And the students loved it. And I was uh, there at the film watching the film. And I said to myself as I was watching, I was like, this is really great stuff. But this is the film for five years ago. I feel like this is the film that's talking about a world that's rapidly disappearing and will soon go away. It was very much in what I would call the cultural engagement mode, as I thought about earlier. So I went home and I started knocking out bullet points about what I should, you know, what I what I thought. And that kind of became the input into the uh, essentially the first version of of it. I didn't publish it initially until actually 2017 in my newsletter, which was originally called The Masculinist. Um, I was actually going to shut the newsletter down because it wasn't getting a whole lot of traction. I'd been sort of writing about men's issues in the church and it was growing, but it didn't hit my metrics. I was going to shut it down. So I'm like, eh, you know, before I shut it down, let me just write my best idea that has nothing to do with men's issues or anything else. And I'll just put it out there and then, you know, in a month we'll shut it down. So I wrote an article, uh, I think it was issue 13 of the newsletter called The the Lost Worlds of Evangelicalism. And somebody sent it to Rod Dreher and that actual article went viral at the time. I mean, the original version went viral and Doug Wilson wrote about it. Other people wrote about it. Somebody told me that it, part of it was read from the pulpit at Redeemer Presbyterian Church's Eastside Campus in New York. And so I got thousands of new subscribers off of that, uh, which is basically, so this article is the only reason basically I kept writing on this topic. And then uh, in 21, uh, First Things Magazine, at the suggestion of James Wood, asked me to update uh, that and create a version for their magazine, which I did. And it turned into a mega viral hit for them. And then, of course, I turned it into a book. And so um, it's something that's been out there for a while um, as an idea that I've had. Um, and um, I'm glad to be able to bring it out in the form of a book. But it's, 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 it's a framework is, is only part of it. Um, you know, it's about a quarter of the book. And then three quarters of the book is about what we should do about where we find ourselves today. Right. So, so the getting to the book itself uh, with, with that background in mind, part one is, is basically that the descriptive uh, kind of framework for negative world. It's the second, the part is called welcome to negative world. Um, the, the first chapter is kind of expanding on the article itself. And then you, you add some more in the, uh, second and third chapters in the, the, the three strategies that you're kind of looking back on for positive and neutral world are the, the culture warriors, seeker sensitive people and the, uh, cultural engagers, which is, I think people shorthand might say, you know, Kellerism or something like that. Um, can you briefly just describe for people those, th the, the kind of distinctives of those three styles of now largely outdated engagement, even though you, you pull from them a little bit as you move on. Yeah, this isn't necessarily in the book, but in retrospect, thinking about it, you know, um, evangelicalism, as we understand it today, is to some extent a product of the decline of Christianity in America. You know, if you go back to the old 50s, sort of Protestant consensus, generic Christian consensus in America. It was really very mainline oriented. And, you know, the kind of the mainline started going into decline. And uh, 
it was really, you know, the, the mainline couldn't reverse decline. The sort of fundamentalists weren't really able to break out of their ghetto of sort of backwoods Christianity. And then it really, in the, you know, um, evangelicalism sort of filled the void that was coming there, you know, with things like the Jesus movement, et cetera, which, um, you know, I don't talk a whole lot about, which I, but which I really see feeding into seeker sensitivity. And so essentially, these three tribes are all developed, uh, these three strategies were all developed as uh, a response to decline, essentially. So the culture war people, that came out of the 1970s, and of course, especially in the 80s and early 90s, you know, with the religious right. This was a group of people who saw Christianity in decline, saw the moral uh, fabric of America decaying, uh, and they decided to mobilize politically to fight and take back the country. And uh, of course, that that fight against secular culture mindset, that sort of theme, that sort of uh, strategy, if you will, is still very much alive and well in America. And so that was a product of the positive world. Seeker sensitivity was a second product of the positive world where people like Bill Hybels sort of did a, you know, business school approach where they did a market survey. You know, he 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 did market research. He asked people why they didn't go to church. He got an earful, as he said, and he designed a church to appeal to people who were not going to church anymore. So it was like, let's lower the barriers to church by getting rid of these denominations, getting rid of stodgy hymns, being informal, uh, sort of contemporary music, sort of theater seating, topical therapeutic sermons, et cetera. And this is the suburban, again, the suburban non-denominational megachurch that we all know, which in some respects is mainstream Christianity, uh, which wasn't necessarily hyper-political, but definitely was Republican-aligned, I would say. And then— what? Aaron, on that one real real quick, I mean, would you also, just to sort of fill it out, I think of Rick Warren as embodying, embodying the same kind yeah. of model. I mean, he wrote as much, right? Like looking at the, uh, you know, who's the guy that makes 200K, you know, has yeah. 2.5 kids, whatever, whatever. But then there's also a sense in which even Mark Driscoll kind of for his own demographic embodied that model, I would say. Yeah, uh, Driscoll is really an interesting one. Um, maybe we can come back to Driscoll um, if you want to talk about him a little bit, because uh, I I do think he's he's kind of unique. Um, but um, but yeah, so to me, like Bill Hybels at Willow Creek in suburban Chicago and Rick Warren at Saddleback in Southern California are the two paradigms of the secret sensitive movement, and both of them very heavily catered to emerging baby boomer suburbia. You know, the boomers were really the demographic heartland of this, whereas. Um, you know, culture war was always a little more backwoods, if you will, you know, much more lesser educated, lower economic status, et cetera. And you would think of people like Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson following that. When we hit the neutral world, we entered a, um, uh, we, we got a third uh, version that I call cultural engagement, which again, I, I think you can think of cultural engagement a couple of ways. One is what you just said of Driscoll. It's a secret sensitivity for the cities. It's, you know, rather than baby boomer suburbia, it's sort of, the new urbanites, the people who are moving back into, for example, post-Giuliani New York, where crime is down, you know, it's 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 now where it's like TV shows like Friends or Seinfeld, you know, the city's cool again, highly educated people, young, hip, intellectual, artistic, at least in their own mind, and um, 
serving that. So that would be one way to think of it. The other way to think of it is sort of the opposite of the culture war. Rather than fighting with people all the time, they wanted to take advantage of this sort of what the neutral world, uh, which was more, um, you know, Christianity was no longer positive towards a culture, wasn't really negative yet. It was sort of a pluralistic public square. It's like, let's take advantage of that, sit down and talk to people. Um, and so I, I really think Tim Keller is sort of the the architect of that strategy, although he started kind of really before the cities came back um, in, in sort of old New York. But then, you know, five years in, Giuliani became mayor and it was a radical change of environment there. I think uh, Driscoll, just to, just briefly on Driscoll, he was kind of interesting in that, um, you know, he was he he was sort of cultural engaging in that he was big city. He was, um, you know, all about the arts. You know, they were very into like, you know, doing their own bespoke music, super high production values, tech savvy. They were early to podcasting and video casting, which is one reason they got big. He was super media savvy, telegenic, master of sort of Internet Web 1.0, if you want to call it that. But he was also very brash and very much of a provocateur, kind of in your face, a little bit polarizing. Um, so he he did channel a little bit of the culture war uh, as well. I mean, he was really a unique guy. Um, uh, you know, there aren't uh, there aren't too many people like uh, uh, um, him. And uh, uh, but uh, he was, in fact, very very successful. Uh, and also interesting that he was Gen X, whereas you know the other people I you know I mentioned are predominantly boomers or pre-boomers. Where where would you situate someone like C.J. Mahaney and his you know because it, it, it overlaps with Driscoll's time. I mean that's when the Gospel Coalition was forming, but Mahaney had uh, some similar aspects of that model. It would seem, but in a totally different, not totally different, but a different environment. And he himself was not Gen X. Yeah, I don't really know that much about C.J. Mahaney, to be honest, so I can't really situate mm -hmm. him. I, I'm really okay. not super familiar with him. Uh, no, that's that's totally fine. I think it's a, uh, it, it, at least, you know, in the viral podcast about all that, he, right. he came up quite a bit. I think but these the, are kind um, of like, um, yeah. you know, these are sort of like three sort of general thrusts. And I do think you can kind of combine mm -hmm. these sort of elements in different ways. Right. And it does not account for everyone. So for example, I do think there are people who you would, you would declare, uh, say are evangelical who don't fall into these categories. So you mm -hmm. might think of, um, uh, the neo monastic, the, the new monastics, for example, the neo Anabaptists, I see mm -hmm. them as being, they, they do have some, some things that are somewhat cultural engagey. Um, but I think they're very distinct, uh, in their own way. Um, so you can always go through and just name people, you know, where do you think that they, where do they place? You, know, you took somebody like Jeff Vanderstelten missional church. I would definitely put that in cultural engagement, uh, mm -hmm. for example. And that was another sort of, um, Puget sound, uh, movement. Mm -hmm. When he, and you, you, uh, well, you don't fully adopt, but you mentioned the, the breakdown between, you know, left, right, and neo-anabaptist or, or the other, you know, this is James Davison yeah. Hunter. And I, I don't know if you mentioned Niebuhr at that point or not, I can't remember, but, um, as another breakdown where the point is that neo-anabaptists are kind of their own distinct thing that may be pulling or fit into, you know, the models it, it less comfortably. Right. Um, but they, they are kind of doing that. Um, well, they're definitely, you know, that uh, yeah. was James Davison Hunter and to change the world. He sort of divided modern American Christianity into the Christian right, the Christian left, and the neo-Anabaptist. And mm -hmm. he's got some very good descriptions of the neo-Anabaptist. Uh, mm -hmm. And they are undoubtedly relentlessly on the left. 
In fact, they are the mm-hmm. most aggressively leftist of all mm-hmm. of them. Um, mm-hmm. I would think, although uh, a lot of those, like again, a lot of the new monastic guys have um, unbelievable skin in the game uh, mm-hmm. in terms of you know how they were personally living their life um, as well. There was this guy I met. Uh, Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove. I hope it's Wilson Hartgrove, not yeah. Hartgrove Wilson. Um, you know, I, when I met him, like the the guy would like go on and on and on about Alec and the Koch brothers and all this stuff and just rampaging about them. And he had led his own sort of private peace mission to Iraq during the first Gulf War. Okay. <laughs> so this that'll give you a sense of where he's coming from. But he was also living in an mm-hmm. intentional community in a black neighborhood in Durham. North Carolina, where like half of the people that lived in this Rootba house that they created were essentially, you know, homeless ex-offenders or people of that nature. And they were trying to create, you know, again, intentional community around that very much in that mode. Uh, and he attended a, you know, and there's a lot I could go on there, but I mean, he had a lot of skin in the game, definitely left, but had yeah. a lot of skin in the game and very congruent yeah. in his beliefs. Yeah. And, there, and there's a sense in which all these groups, including perhaps especially the neo-Anabaptist leanings politically, you could describe uh, many evangelicals lately, much much more lately, uh, more obviously taking a sort of historically Anabaptist approach to a lot of politics. But there's a sense in which these approaches to decline from evangelicals, and, and you describe a, a strength, actually, of evangelicalism being its adaptability. I, we can come back to that in a, in a minute. But each of the each of the approaches or responses to decline have something commendable about them, but something that is, uh, you know, not recommendable, not uh, that has not been successful, and that's where you move into the negative world strategies. Yes. Yeah. So the what are the yeah maybe maybe briefly say because you do this at the end of, of part one what what is the benefit of adopting certain pieces of each one. Um, but the rest of it being non-transferable. Sure. Well, I think there are like, there are different things that we can recognize that certain of these people got right in a sense. For example, the seeker-sensitive movement. And I think there's um, there's a lot of this that flowed into some of the culture engagement people like Keller as well, was this idea of let's not put any artificial, man-made, extra-biblical barriers between people and the gospel. Okay. Let's not, if we're going to have somebody turned off on the gospel, let it be because they're offended by the gospel itself, not because they don't like our choir robes and our 16th century hymns. Okay. So there is this sense of, hey, we want to have, you know, something that, that is, you know, designed to get, to bring people to Jesus first and then bring some of these other things maybe later. Again, I think the uh, culture war people, you know, understood that sometimes you have to be willing to be unpopular. <laughs> you know, there's just you're you're, you're not going to be able to square the circle on popularity. And again, I think the the cultural engager people, um, you know, had much more of a um, an appreciation for the life of the mind as well, the arts, things of that nature. Um, saw more value in vocation. Um, perhaps the faith and work movement really came out of that. So I think there are things you can look at this and say, you know, the they did you know, they all got, they did some interesting things. And I'm not saying that you just take the best and bam, there's your solution. I think with the part of it is like any, any approach that you take is only going to be partially correct at best. Um, you know, and, and you're going to have, you know, some strengths and some weaknesses. 
that's why I'm not as negative on, you know, people like to bemoan the divisions in the church. And yes, the church shouldn't be divided. At the same time, I think kind of the different denominations have different gifts, almost like different gifts of the spirit, and they're better at certain things. And, you know, I think ultimately that will end up reconciled, you know, um, but um, not everybody's good at the same thing. Right. Um, okay. So just to circle back to the, the adaptation uh, question, because that's what, you know, all these strategies, again, are, are reactive in a certain sense to decline. You make very clear in the book, I think you've said this recently in a podcast that maybe you didn't make it as clear in the initial article, but it is clear in the book that, you know, by the 50s, even as we're sort of enshrining in God we trust, we have a, you know, I guess the, the first president to convert to Christianity in office uh presbyterian actually the it is still a, a a situation of decline by the 50s um and and in some of the initial thoughts i threw out there on american reformer i was using winthrop hudson's analysis and he's writing in 1960 and says the decline started in 1914 so it'd be a right. hundred years before negative world enters right it, the decline actually starts which makes sense but this, this idea of adaptation as being an actual um, strength of evangelicalism, I think you, you put it somewhere like that, um, is something that, that might be, you know, worth interrogating or might be questionable to some readers is, is that actually a strength or does the, the adaptive kind of mood, um, necessarily entail that any strategy will be an ultimate failure, as you say, because you're, you're fighting on, you're on defense all the time. Well, yeah, I do think when, you know, when you're, when you're constantly in adaptation mode, you know, you, there's strengths and weaknesses out of everything. You know, the strength is um, that you're able to, you know, again, to adapt, adapt to better to changing times, almost by definition. The downside is you're not as rooted. You're not as permanent. You get blown here and there by the wind a little bit. The stuff you build and create tends to decay very quickly. The half-life of an evangelical church is probably pretty short, um, you know, in comparison to some of these mainline churches that have been around, you know, 150, 200 years in some cases. Uh, and, um, you, you know, so there is a sense in which if you don't, you know, the, the, the downside is you, you end up, um, syncretizing with the culture, the stuff you let, you know, do doesn't last very long. Um, uh, but if you fail, you know, your failures to adapt, uh, come with their own consequences as well. You know, and one of the things we see in, uh, for example, in say a country like Brazil and Latin America, is that the kind of the incumbent Roman Catholic Church really hasn't been has been much less successful at adapting than evangelicalism, which is why much of Latin America is becoming evangelical rather than Roman Catholic, because the evangelicals have a message that's more resonating with the people. Which it, which is kind of historically odd, because uh, historically you could you could describe at least in the medieval period as catholicism being highly adaptable and that was that was one of its strengths i mean you you see this in of course uh you, you know among the britons and the irish uh, that sort of thing yeah but well, um, and i think so, they've always yeah. been good they've certainly been good in kind of a missionary context the other thing what what often happens in the, in the kind of the cat what's happened historically i think in the catholic world is there's some kind of an innovator and the innovator is kind of a renegade, not very popular with the establishment, but then he's eventually the, the renegades are eventually sort of institutionalized and tamed over the generation, which is how all these mm -hmm. orders like the Dominicans and the Franciscans got started, right? Mm -hmm. It's like mm -hmm. Francis is this kind of wild man, 
and then it's like it's contained you know the franciscan movement if you will their kind of giftings are contained within catholicism whereas in protestantism mm-hmm. there would just be a split it would be a schism and a mm-hmm. sect um breaking out off of that um you know sometimes of questionable orthodoxy um but yeah you know so but definitely there's definitely track record and i think like for example i do think the uh there, there's much more of a charismatic Catholicism now in South America as they realize, mm-hmm. you know, we got to compete with the Pentecostals. Right. Right. And even the, uh, I mean, this, that kind of move with the, uh, the preaching orders, we might say the Dominicans, Franciscans was, you know, it, it was, it was a function of the hierarchy that's inherent in, in Catholicism because the, you know, those were given permission from, from the Pope to go into any jurisdiction and preach and kind of shake things up. And there was lots of conflict, you know, from the local bishops uh, frothing kind of against that because it was a violation of jurisdiction. Right. But when you have that hierarchy being sort of demanded, it, it, it changes things much more rapidly than a more decentralized, non-hierarchical uh, scenario. Right. And you anyway, could even, you could even go back yeah. to, you know, the original sort of monastic movements in the Desert Fathers, people just going off and becoming ascetics mm-hmm. and things like that. And it was sort of contained within the church. It wasn't just, yeah. you know, it wasn't uh, there. And uh, that's one thing that, you know, Protestantism, you know, it's like you leave and go start a startup, right? You start your own startup. Mm-hmm. You don't necessarily, uh, it's institutionally weak, certainly evangelicalism mm-hmm. in that sense. Yeah. Yeah. And there's always, you know, I, I quoted in the, the piece I wrote a funny, funny kind of, uh, I think it was in a sermon actually from Henry Emerson Fosdick, like late in the 30s. It was like, oh, maybe we accommodated too much, <laughs> you know, which was like a little late in the game for him to do that. But, uh, you know, maybe we've gone too far. So there, there's always that. And that was for the main line, uh, you know, which had then essentially become community churches with no no distinctives whatsoever with these kind of uh, agreements that uh, you know, Anglicans over here and Presbyterians over here, you take care of that, that geographic area. Um, but anyway. Um, okay, Josh, anything to chime in on there before we move on to uh, strategic analysis now that we've beat up negative world in a probably totally nonsensical uh, approach? But Yeah, uh, no, one, one question, Aaron, and, and I think I've seen this in some of the critical engagements with your periodization and argumentation, but how, like, how would you respond to the line of argumentation that, that basically says – um, the fundamentalist battles between the fundamentalists and the liberals in the 1920s, in some senses, represented the start of negative world in the sense that, you know, this this represented a time where um, Christians who held to some sort of historical distinctives like around, you know, the inerrancy of scripture or, you know, the miraculous nature of, uh, you know, Jesus's life, like the virgin birth and resurrection and such. Um, and especially the the evolution versus creationism debate, the fundamentalists sort of you know had to leave the public square in the twenties, um, and there were of course splits in a lot of the main lines. So so how how do you you know how how would you I guess respond to a line of argumentation that would say it's been negative world for the really rigorous Christians for one hundred years. Yeah, well, first, what I always say is, if you don't find the uh, framework compelling and it's not useful for you, don't use it. Um, I'm not trying to uh, cram this down anybody's throat or pretend that it's the, uh, you know, one true uh, 
lens on which to understand history. Uh, and I would certainly say it's probably doesn't answer every question. It's, um, you know, it, it's not, uh, again, designed to capture every nuance. It's designed to help understand, make people make sense of what they've seen in the world, like in their own life, uh, in a lot of ways. To me, it's sort of like the way that we divide, you know, we, we say we divide history into sort of ancient, medieval, and modern. That sort of tripartite division. Man, that misses a lot. It's not useful for a lot of things. Uh, but, you know, we keep coming back to it because there's a certain utility there, in it, I think. And and so, um, you know, I, I never really, uh, you know, to me, like the, the fundamentalist monitors controversy, once you get back prior to, say, 1964, which is where I sort of begin my three worlds. Sort of the the once once the kind of uh, kind of Protestant Christian consensus really cracked up, the old Protestant establishment collapsed in America. For example, that world is different than the world before. So, if you want to go back and look at Christianity in American history, you know, writ large, there's a lot of things going on there, right? There was, you know. Old light, new light, old side, new side. There was the Civil War. I mean, there were tons of divisions going back all the way. And um, one, one of the things I would just say, though, about like fundamentalist modernist controversy is, you know, the modernists certainly claim the label of Christian. You know, they, they, they certainly, uh, you know, they viewed their Christianity really as maybe the more authentic version of Christianity. Uh, and, you know, whatever we might think of that. They were not trying to essentially uh, kick Christianity out of the public square or anything like that because, you know, they were all, many of them were, you know, Protestant ministers themselves. And so I think that, um, I think that is really, um, you know, where I, where I would go with that. Yeah, I think, I mean, one thing that's that's compelling to me about the uh, the framework, and again, I, I mean, I like that response a lot. It's very similar to... Uh, I saw Michael Anton write recently at the beginning of a piece that people had been complaining he writes too long. And he was like, look, no one's got a gun to your head. You don't have to read it, <laughs> which, which I thought was a great response. Um, but, but in this, I mean, in one sense, there is this, this conflict could be described over time that's playing out as a rural urban divide and Protestants trying to grapple with that. And it's with, certain uh changes in immigration and specifically catholic immigration that which consolidates in urban centers and protestantism had always been somewhat rural that uh, it begins to change this dynamic very rapidly especially in the late 19th century into the 20th century and then you see the sort of crescendo is getting your first catholic president which i think is basically where you're where you're kind of dating it right um so so if nothing else it's the um you know, the nail is in the in the coffin, more or less, at that point that you begin. So there's lots of, of prior causality that goes into it. But of, but of course, this is a, a watershed yeah. moment that really signals something very different going on. Yeah. And one thing I would say uh, that I don't put this in the book because I'm not interested in really picking fights with our Catholic friends. Um, but the reality is part of the deinstitutionalization of Christianity in America was, uh, you know, at the behest of Catholics. Ultimately, exactly right. Catholics played an enormous and in some respects decisive role in undermining Christianity in America. Um, mm -hmm. You know, they didn't like prayer in schools because they thought the prayers were too Protestant. They didn't like the mm -hmm. use of the King James Bible, uh, mm -hmm. for example. Um, mm -hmm. They're very sectarian. And, 
Um, and so, you know, I don't, I don't pretend to be the, the deepest expert on that, you know, but th this is one of the things that like, when you start looking at history, you start, you start missing out on these things that like, look, the Catholics were great critics of, of the Protestant establishment and mm -hmm. say, unlike Jews who also had their own kind of criticisms of that, but were numerically very small outside of say New York city, you know, there were, there were, you know, unbelievable large number of Catholics. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and so that became like a major, became a major demographic block, um, as well as, as I always say, it's like, you know, every time you read a book, uh, talking about like, you know, trying to tend to cite the kind of where it all went wrong in America and such in something internal to kind of the Protestant establishment of that it's almost invariably written by someone who is not themselves Protestant, <laughs> you know, yeah. and, yeah. and who is, uh, overlooking the issues that their own you know particular group uh the role they played in in how we got to now yeah no that i, I mean yeah the, i brought basically this point up in the the piece i wrote which was you know the catholics introduce pluralism more or less which is something all the post-liberal catholics froth against now but they they essentially institutionalized it they they came in and were like it's bigoted that you that your public schools are coded for Protestantism. And then once they won those battles, they were like, just kidding. We don't want to go to those schools anyway. We're going to start our own things, you know, after right. they had already, already, you know, gotten the Bible, whatever. Um, anyway, I, I think that's that's something that should be explored further um, of, of how this this happened. And the, you know, the urban centers were able to to sort of push those developments because it's where power has often been concentrated and it's where Catholics happen to congregate they did not uh become rural as as many other protestants were so yeah i anyway, think um you know uh, i gotta yeah. you know I, I know we're, we're gonna be limited over time but i think there's like a lot of once you start looking at the catholic protestant lens and things like that you start thinking mm -hmm. about a lot of different things and like what is the role that this played you know for example in something like roe versus wade where mm -hmm. <laughs> you know there's concern you know in certain quarters even at those late dates around you know Catholics not using birth control and having lots of kids mm -hmm. or about busing, mm -hmm. you know, in, mm -hmm. in Boston, school busing in Boston, which was sort of the wasp revenge against the Irish ethnics who take it <laughs> up, you know, when, when, uh, you know, is it James Michael Curley took over the city? Mm -hmm. There's a great paper by, uh, uh economist like Glazer, the Curley effect. He deliberately like made things horrible for the wasps in order to encourage them to leave and solidify his mm -hmm. control over the city. Well, then, you know, the wasp, you know, through busing, essentially destroyed those Irish neighborhoods in mm -hmm. uh in in Boston. There was some payback there. And so you I mean you mm -hmm. should always, when you're looking at American history, these sort of like social class, religion, ethnic boundaries like are so important in understanding. Not saying that they make that everything comes down to that, but it's a little mm -hmm. extra lens on how to think about these things that no one ever ever mentions. Right. Le moral of the story is everyone can just go watch Gangs of New York and you understand American history after that. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, the, the thing <laughs> but, I love about Gangs of New York, as one of my friends pointed out, is Boss Tweed is essentially the good guy. Right. <laughs> right, right. Boss Tweed is progress, basically. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, um, because, we, yeah, we do want to moderate our time here. The um, To get to the rest of the book, Aaron, so we, we've kind of circled around you know the ex explanation for how we got here the background but then the as you said you know three quarters of the book 
is uh, getting down to brass tacks and kind of providing um, some advice on how to conduct yourself as essentially a moral minority at this point. You don't you don't have cultural cultural control. You no longer set a, kind of set the rules of the game. So you've got to play in a new environment, which is negative world. Um, so break break down for us just briefly, you know, kind of where you take it at that point. Well, I have three sections on the future which deal with um, what you might call the personal, the institutional, and the missional. So how should we live as individuals and as families? How should our churches and other institutions, including things like businesses, function? And then how should we do mission? And what I would say is, here's what I would just say is general themes that we should be thinking about for the negative world. Theme one is exploration. Um, and I make this point before I even really get into it, which is, you know, a guy like Bill Hybels could sort of do traditional market research and kind of design a church to, you know, reach an underserved market niche. I don't think we can, we're not going to be able to come up with a 50 point plan. Okay. For the negative world, we're going to, we're in an uncertain, unprecedented, rapidly changing environment. And therefore we're sort of like the explorers going into the unknown. We have to be a uh, able to walk more by faith than by sight uh, and recognize that a lot of what we try isn't going to work and we're going to need a lot of people out there experimenting. And so I think the exploration mindset uh, is is important. The example I use is the Hebrews crossing the Jordan River into the promised land. This was a generation that had known only the desert. That was their only experience of life. They had to cross into the unknown of the land of Canaan. And there's a line in Joshua where it says, follow the ark because you have not been this way before. And that's us. We have not been this way before. So that's theme one exploration. Theme two is counterculture. And here, uh, this was a great suggestion of my editor, by the way, that he, he suggested I engage with Tim Keller's book, Center Church. And in Center Church, Keller puts his own spin on H. Richard Niebuhr's Christ and culture model. And so, uh, my three worlds model is about how the world views the church. The Christ and culture model was about how the church views the world, <laughs> basically. Um, and Keller came up with essentially, he reduced it to essentially, uh, Niebuhr has five styles. He has four that he labels transformation, relevance, counterculture, and two kingdoms. Transformation is where Keller puts culture war in that they want to transform the country via politics to inaugurate a more godly society. I think that Keller and the culture engagers had a, a bit of transformational um, emphasis as well. The second is relevance, which I think is um, kind of self-explanatory. The secret sensitives are clearly relevance. I, cl I classify the cultural engagers also as primarily relevance uh, but also sometimes with transformational aspirations, I think, as Keller wanted to transform the city. And um, the two kingdoms would be like the, our Lutherans. Let's put them aside for the minute because they're not big. But um, counterculture uh, is his uh, his kind of uh, uh, encapsulation of the Christ against culture model, where the church exists primarily to be you know, a community apart from the world. So you would put the Amish in counterculture you would put the kind of new monastics and into the neo-Anabaptist into the counterculture uh, model, any kind of intentional community, the Bruderhof, you would say is very counterculture. And so what I suggest is 
Not that we want to become the Amish, okay, or that we forget about, you know, being relevant or we forget about transformation or forget about other things, but there needs to be a shift in emphasis away from transformation and relevance towards counterculture. That is to say, we need to strengthen our own communities, self-consciously steward the strength of our own communities in ways that we did not have to do previously. So sort of theme one would be uh, exploration. Theme two would be counterculture. Uh, theme three, which is, you know, you can, it's really part of counterculture, but I want to uh, la- label it separately, is what I call minority mindset. If you're a minority, you need to start acting like a minority. You know, minorities in the U.S. have always behaved very differently from the majority culture. And I think we need to start taking some uh, lessons from them and how to, again, st- primarily to strengthen and, and sustain our own community. And I actually use early 20th century Catholicism. Uh, as an example of what to do there. Um, and then the fourth is um, is something that I would say is, I don't know if there's like, like a pithy um, uh, uh, label for it. What I'm, You might call it like high bar Christianity. Um, you know, uh, I, I was really uh, uh, struck by the, when I was reading um, Charles Taylor's A Secular Age. He has this thing called the dilemma of renunciation. So in the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages, um, there was basically this high bar for what it meant to live as a saint. And the Catholic Church realized that this was not attainable to the average man. So really only the monks and the priests and people of that nature, the super Christians, could really be expected to live out the full Christian ethics. Everybody else was sort of just along for the ride. It was sort of a two-tier, two-speed Christianity. The Reformation rejected two-speed Christianity and said we need to have single-speed Christianity. And so the the the, empty, the result of a single speed Christianity or single level Christianity is that you have to lower the bar so that everybody can clear it <laughs> because you can't you can't make everyone live like a monk uh, if you have to reach all of society. And so the, the the dilemma of renunciation is, you know, you if you want to set a high bar, you have to be somewhat tolerant of a two speed Christianity. If you if you want to have a one-speed Christianity, you must have a lower bar, basically, for what you demand of people. You can't demand that they renounce too much of this life. And so I sort of apply that to the situation of Christianity in America, Protestantism in America. In the 1950s, where we're sort of a Protestant normative society, and it's sort of expected that people go to church, the church has to have a very low bar. (laughs) You basically have have to have a place in the pews for anyone who shows up. And as you move into a negative world where the idea that everyone's going to be a Christian's going to Christianity is increasingly going to be for the minority, I think we can say, great, do we need to have a sort of a least common denominator church like the secret sensitives had or like the cultural engagers had? Or can we say, hey, maybe we should be a lot more like the New Testament church where there was a very high standard and we're not, we're not, you know, we're understanding that the majority of people are not going to be Christian. And therefore, we can say you are expected to actually live out the Christian life in something of its fullness uh, in a way that we could never say before when Christianity was sort of the default civil religion of America. So that's sort of another theme that I think about. Yeah, there, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there, and, and Josh probably has his own thoughts as well. The one, the one thread I just wanted to pull briefly that I thought was most compelling is sort of the, that I think would be most effective for a lot of Christians to adopt is the sort of minority uh, mentality, 
right? And you you see the um, as you mentioned minorities, uh, whatever kind of minority. There's several movements in American history, recent history, that have they operate very differently, but they're also maximally effective, and that's for various reasons. I mean, in some cases, it's tapping into uh, certain pathologies that are actually designed for Christianity's demise, but but they tap into them. And you, you see this like with the gay lobby, right? I mean, so um, w- one analog to this could be, you know, there, there's certain people kind of running from a label of Christian nationalism right now, right? We can adjudicate whether it's a good label or not later, but you're running from it. Whereas if you were the gay lobby 30 years ago, you just lean into all of it, right? Whether, I mean, and you can sort of expand on it and amend it later, but the pride uh, sort of theme is very, very strong. And you just say, we're going to be everything you think we are. Right. And uh, we're going to, we're going to parade through the streets. Right. And, and this has been for various reasons, very effective, but it is a totally different mentality than the ones that a lot of Christians adopt right now. Yeah. The challenge, and this is one reason I use early 20th century Catholicism a little bit as a an example. I think when you start looking at other minorities and what they've done, um, what you often see, and especially like, uh, you know, racial minorities or the thing, or, or you know, essentially, um, you know, people who are gay, they, they have um, uh, a degree of community solidarity that evangelicals are never going to have. Because basically you can't defect, you know, if, if you're, you know, essentially if you're gay in the early 1990s, um, it's not like you can just, uh, well, I'll just go, I'll just get away from all the negative, uh, uh, you know, way people think about gays, but just becoming straight, you know, it wasn't going to happen. And so, uh, you know, similarly, you know, one of the things people criticize my three worlds model for, which I think is ridiculous is this idea that, you know, well, it wasn't a positive world for black Americans in the 1950s, I can tell you that. Yeah, but you know what? They weren't being treated poorly because they were Christian. They were being treated poorly because they were black. And there was no getting out of that. And so groups that have essentially externally enforced solidarity um, have the ability to do certain things. It's harder for evangelicals to pull off because it's very easy to essentially defect which is what, for example, um, and you could even defect without shedding the label, which someone like David French has done, for example. There are so many ways to right. essentially get out from underneath the uh, the spotlight that I think it makes it very, very difficult to uh, come up with things. Now, now, what I would say is definitely, you know, at the individual church level, the individual community level, um, leaning into what makes you different uh, I think into your into your actual distinctives and your core beliefs um, is something that I think is uh, a very powerful. And you know, again, even um, you know, even Tom Holland has talked about that, where he said, "Look, mm-hmm. you know, Christianity needs to lean into the weird stuff, you know, mm-hmm. the demonic and like miracles." And and so there is there is something to that. I think there is something to that. Uh, it's just harder to implement as a community-wide strategy because it's very easy to defect from evangelicalism. Right. And part of that's because it's not, you know, the defections aren't, aren't ruthlessly punished, you know, so, so David French is allowed to sort of straddle uh, the, the line or, you know, have a foot in each boat and there's still some of his defenders and he can kind of uh, do this in a in a possible future, you know, that's, that's simply not allowed. And the, the end group would, punish him ruthlessly for any kind of defection. 
Uh, but that's obviously not a reality now. Um, you know, the, the weirdness kind of leaning into the weirdness, which I think is that, like you said, there's a lot to that. And you see some of, uh, you see defections from evangelicalism because they don't do that fast enough. And that's why you have everyone going, you know, Eastern Orthodox or something because it's the weirdness now, you know, you, you get to kind of hop into that and be countercultural immediately. Um, so, so evangelicalism is kind of bleeding on all fronts, uh, in, in that sense. But, um, Josh, as, as we wrap up on this, because I know we're, we're tight on time here. Hey, can uh, I just add new... one more point on that? Yeah, you know, for sure. Part of it is like there's very little value to being a part of the average evangelical church. So even mm-hmm. if you suffer ostracism, you really lose nothing. You just go down to the church down the street and join that one. Yeah. And so yeah. Uh, you have to have something of value that people fear losing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Perfect segue to my question, Aaron, which was going to be um, <laughs> on uh, on institutional engagement. What, how how do these insights then apply on the institutional level as evangelicals think about um, engaging with existing institutions, um, shoring up their own, and founding new ones? Can can you talk through a little bit about how that strategy unpacks? Sure, I sort of take an I sort of take an opportunistic or triage strategy when it comes to institutions. Some institutions you can't avoid, like the IRS. Um, but yeah, I, I sort of I sort of look at are there institutions that are doing the right thing, moving in the right direction with leaders that are trying to to improve things? Great, I'll probably support that institution. You know, are there ones that are going in the wrong direction? Um, you know that. Um, yeah, I'm probably going to not support it. Um, one of the things I do believe is that minority mindset means that you become less invested in the mainstream institution society. Like the military, you know, to me, if you're a conservative uh, young man, or, you know, you have a, you know, a son who's military age, whether or not you should go in the the military should be a completely transactional decision. Might be good for some people to make some college money, or maybe it'll help them get shaped up or whatever. This idea that you're just going to be like, I'm going to be patriotic, serve my country. Like, you're being you're being a chump um, if you're doing that, and so I think yeah we just need to we need to uh, you know we need to check out like we're checking out of the public schools. Public schools are really important. I'm not entirely giving up on public schools per se, but like it looks like a really hard problem, and I don't think that we should feel any obligation to stay invested in institutions that are not aligned with our values and often hostile to us. You know, and the reality is is like. We need to be willing to say to people, yes, there are legitimate problems in the country, but those are your problems. They're not our problems. They're your problems. Mm. Homelessness in San Francisco is your problem. Okay. And yeah, if you're like the Catholic Church in San Francisco, of course you're going to be trying to like serve the homeless. If you're there, you're you're not going to ignore that. But this idea that like, oh, we need to be trying to like get structures of society to reorient around these problems. When the problem is, is the people who are running San Francisco, that's the problem, right? In California, and it's their problem. It's not our problem. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I had a, uh, my, my father-in-law actually was very early to this on the military point because I almost, uh, I intended to go JAG when I was in, in law school. And he, he is a uh, naval veteran and Annapolis grad, talked me out of it for this exact reason, uh, which is, you know, all of us can lament the fact that uh, a, ge- a generation ago, the the patriotic impulse expressed that way was still somewhat legitimate. You know that was you weren't participating in an institution that's uh, dysfunctional and you know basically hates you. 
Um, but that's just changed and that's part of the, the playing out of the negative world. So I think the, um, you know, we, we can call it the, the exit, uh, in some sense is, um, you know, is advisable, uh, insofar as people can do it. Uh, I, th- I think, and I think people are increasingly, uh, adopting that view. It seems to me, at least with schooling. Um, okay. Parting thoughts real quick then before we, before we hop off here. Uh, Josh, anything else? And then we'll, we'll let Aaron have the last word here. Yeah. I think just going to his military and public school point, I think that we're already seeing a little bit of this, which is sort of like a cascading, I guess I'd say lack of, uh, cascading lack of confidence in a lot of mainstream institutions. And so I think, you know, this, this falls to us. And I know, you know, American reformer as an institution is working on several fronts to uh, provide solutions. But I think to those of us who are evangelical and situated to do so, it falls to us to start, um, you know, creating those alternative institutions. And, you know, of course, those take time. They require legitimacy and credibility and a track Mm -hmm. record. Um, But, Mm -hmm. you know, the, the hour is late, I think, in getting some of those institutions stood up and uh you know uh Aaron really really appreciate your work on this front and I think sounding the uh sounding the alarm in some ways that that we really do need to get uh disruptive and entrepreneurial uh with our own community and our own institutions uh really now. Right. And well thank you. And I think this bit about minority mindset, it'll be interesting to see what generates the most controversy in the book. But I certainly think that Adopting the minority mindset will be harshly and bitterly opposed by significant segments of evangelical leadership. And Mm -hmm. you hear a lot of talk, for example, today around the common good, for example. Everybody likes to talk about the common good. Rhetoric around the common good is one of the ways that they try to manipulate you into staying invested in these um, institutions and staying invested in these things. and so I think we have to be, you know, there's going to be a lot of, uh, there's going to be a lot of uh, gaslighting uh, going on uh, and things of that nature. But the reality is, you know, again, I'm, I'm heavily influenced by, you know, kind of my reading of, you know, Paul's letters in the New Testament. You know, he was not, you know, he was like, yes, pay taxes to whom taxes are, are due, you know, give honor to the king, do all that stuff. We should, we should be doing that. You know, we should be paying our taxes. We should be carrying out our obligations to society at the same time. You know, the early church was not about propping up the institutions of the Roman Imperium, okay, which were, you know, in many ways, evil institutions. And, you know, that that was, I think, the the last famous last paragraph or maybe infamous last paragraph of Alistair uh, McIntyre's book, After Virtue, that inspired uh, 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 Rodrier's Benedict option was this idea that, you know, uh, kind of yeah, I can't quote it exactly, but it's something like, you know, men of goodwill decided to turn aside from, you know, propping up the remains of the Roman Imperium in favor of building something new. They turned their back on that and built something new. And of course, he hated the Benedict Option. I think he regrets ever writing that paragraph. Uh, but <laughs> I think that that paragraph, read the last paragraph of Alistair McIntyre's After Virtue. And I think it's mm. a tremendous guide to how we ought to be thinking in this world. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm reminded of Robert Louis Wilkins' uh, book, whatever it is on the early church, where he, he just talks about, you know, from the beginning, I mean, the, the Christians, they're not just kind of floating around. I mean, they're already creating calendars and their own burial rituals and all these sort of 
uh, you know, foundational elements of culture uh, that then spring forward once, you know, especially at the collapse of the of the empire later um, to build something new. So um, anyway, Aaron, thanks so much for coming on to talk to us about this this book. I'm sure it's going to generate a ton more discussion, um, even more after your uh, than it did after your first article, but now the, uh, everyone's going to be talking about the book. So thanks for coming to us relatively first. And, uh, we appreciate all your work and, uh, I'm sure we'll have to have you on for a debrief at some point, uh, once it's been out there for a while. Okay, great. Thanks for having me on. All right, everybody follow, uh, Amer- subscribe to AmericanReformer.org for the articles and content. Also this podcast and follow us on Twitter at, at AmReformer. And until until next time, have a good one. You can find American Reformer on the Internet at www.americanreformer.org or on x.com, formerly Twitter, at amreformer. Don't forget to like, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. Please consider supporting us today by making a tax-deductible donation through our secure online donation portal at AmericanReformer.org. That's AmericanReformer.org.